0: My name is Louise Kankar, and I'd like to start with a land acknowledgement speaking from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I'm speaking from the land on which Marquette University sits. I want to acknowledge that this land is the traditional homelands of the Menominee, Potawatomi, and Ho-Chunk Indian nations who remain our hosts. Milwaukee is also home to a large and resurging urban community that includes diasporic indigenous people from around the US and Canada as well as from across the globe. Um, I am a professor of sociology and social welfare and justice at Marquette University. I also direct the minor in Arab and Muslim American studies and the major in peace studies. Um, I've published widely, it's funny reading my own bio, I've published widely on Arab Americans and Muslim Americans, including two books coming out shortly. One with Swad Joseph, Arab American Women, Representation and Refusal, and another one with uh, Amira Jarmakani and Pauline Homsey vinson uh, sedjalu Arab American, a Reader in Swana Studies. And my prior book was Homeland Insecurity, the Arab American and Muslim American Experience after nine months. Um, so It was my pleasure to bring together this special issue of the Journal of Palestine Studies on Palestinian Communities in the US and Canada. I note at the beginning of my article introducing the issue that over the past 50 years there's been a dearth of published research on geographically bounded self-defined Palestinian communities in the US and Canada. Think about this. When I conducted my first ethnographic study of a US Palestinian community in the 1980s, I located three prior studies of Palestinian communities going back to 1947. All of them were theses, all of them were unpublished and all were conducted in Chicago, interestingly. One would think between the 1980s and today, over the course of more than three decades, a pool of work on Palestinian communities in North America would have accumulated, especially considering they've grown in size, spread out in location, are multi-generational and they are neither off the radar of surveillance nor dissolving into whiteness. Yet between that time and now, only my work and that of Rhonda Sirhan in 2008 precedes Lauren Leibarger's recent book. We should find this bleak state of affairs shocking. Why is it, especially considering the rise of race and ethnic studies in the academy, that scholars have access to no more than a handful of studies on Palestinian American communities conducted across a time span of 70 years so that's not even one per decade i situate this predicament of obscurity within the larger political project to quash pro-palestinian voices and activism in the us and canada in the article i spelled in detail and in semi-autobiographical form how it is that the issue of palestine is absolutely central to this void in published scholarship I itemize the decades long marginalization and silencing of a body of scholarship that gives voice to Palestinians and Arab Americans and diaspora. I point out the very real challenges scholars faced. Oops. Sorry, getting a job in the academy, obtaining research grants, speaking at mainstream conferences, and publishing in mainstream venues, all of which made it nearly impossible to to mentor a new generation of scholars. One of the key assertions of scholars of Palestinians and Arabs in the US and Canada is that this censorship was orchestrated through the deployment of a racial project. Racial tactics were intentionally utilized to isolate and silence these communities. So their dissent would go unheard, their policing would draw consent and solidarity would be difficult to build. They were constructed ideologically as uncivilized persons and terror threats and then treated as such by the policies of the state. Yet despite critically important paradigm shifts that have challenged earlier science silences within scholarly disciplines and area studies and race and ethnic studies, and despite our considerable evidence, race scholars find it easy to dismiss our findings. We have been repeatedly rebuffed from above by scholars who see racial subordination as solely defined by domestic economic policies, or who say that we are ineligible to make these claims because Arab Americans are not an official racial minority. These dismissals ignore the global dimensions of race and the interplay of race and empire. They play into the hands of those whose political agenda lies in actively suppressing Palestinian and Arab American voices. The silencing of Arab Americans on the issue of racialization is another part of what I call the war on terror racial project. A systematic set of ideological tools and policing practices that simultaneously rely on racialized tropes to discipline and quash dissent while denying race by replacing it with the term threat. And so, to this day, abetted by the challenges of recognition within race studies, scholars of Palestinians and Arabs, Swana Americans more broadly, continue to face hurdles at the institutional level of teaching, funding, and publishing, all of which continue to inhibit the robust growth of the field. Finally, the mass collective impacts of 911 on Arabs and Muslims in the US and Canada evidence the ultimate success of this racial project, born of silencing dissent. As members of all of these communities were held accountable for the acts of a few the ultimate marker of racism. Yet nowadays the central role of Palestine and US empire in the oppression surveillance policing and racism faced by Arabs. Palestinians and Muslims in diaspora is alighted by a new scholarly narrative that conveniently starts their subordination with the 911 attacks. And the post 911 war on terror. This new story, and it's just a story, is trumpeted by scholars across a range of disciplines, and it implicitly points to Arab Muslim terrorists as the cause of anti Arab, anti Muslim racism. It falsely presumes that before 911, all was good. There was no Operation Boulder, there was no LA 8 case, there was no Alex Odom murder, and so on. This blame the victim scenario represents a new way to obscure the connection between Palestine and US empire and the systematic profiling and policing of Palestinian Arab and Muslim communities. It is an argument that has been made easy to pull off precisely because of the barriers to publication we faced prior to 911. But the record of repression, deportations, FBI intrusions, and surveillance since 1967 is there. And the record of the wide promotion of the terrorist stereotype is also there. Our scholarship must insist on maintaining the continuous thread before and after 911 to halt this newest form of erasure. I concluded my essay with a call to invigorate local community studies because they are a critically important method of scholar activist praxis that has the power to enhance the community's well-being, organizing capacities and power and solidarity building. Community studies furnish a community with data that help it gain access to resources, fight discrimination and policing, and especially in the case of Palestinians organizing against their erasure. Effective community organizing and solidarity Solidarity work require communities that are not beaten down by poverty, mental health issues or fear and who have, that have youth that feel lifted up. We scholars have a role to play in all of this. Advancing such work however requires institutional changes and an opening up of the doors of the academy so we can mentor new scholars, expand our work and move from obscurity to visibility. While these changes can be mobilized from below, as with the very birth of race and ethnic studies, for now, our most promising possibility might be imagining a field of Middle East, Swana, and Palestine studies that expands its regional lens into a global one that includes diasporas. From my own experience, that too is a struggle that will require advocacy. Stepping away from the academy, its rigidities and limitations, Facts on the ground reveal a different and indeed a better story. And that's the story we're going to spend today on. Robust and expanding solidarity movements locally, nationally, and globally that do not bend to indeed on principle would not bend to pressures to exclude Palestinians and Arabs. It is this agitation from below that ignites new scholarship in Arab American and Palestinian studies, forefront scholar activist praxis. We find a growing body of scholarship that focuses on resistance, solidarities, and the interconnected struggles that situate Palestine in the context of broader anti-racist, anti-colonial, and anti-settler colonial movements. We see in this literature a radical rethinking of Arab American positionalities within transnational spaces, more complex understandings of the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, activism, and identities, deeper explorations of global and intersecting dimensions of violence. The essays included in the special issue and the scholars on this panel center the, complex, center the complexities of identities, activism, and BIPOC solidarities that evidence real changes on the ground for Palestinian activism. The scholarship of Professors Kutami and Desai is interested in understanding the context and challenges that frame the hard work of building larger and more powerful movements in North America Turtle Island for the liberation of Palestine, efforts that must engage with and for the liberation of other oppressed communities. Professor Liebarger draws our attention to the fact that Palestinian communities in North America are ideologically multidimensional, providing a range of challenges to and opportunities for solidarity work. So with that lead in, I'd like to now introduce our panel and our process. Uh, I will read the bios of each panelist. Then each panelist has five to seven minutes to summarize their paper. After that, I have a question I'm going to ask each panelist to respond to. Uh, Following that, we're going to have a shared discussion of what I call bigger questions uh, for the field. And then finally, we'll open up the panel to the audience. Uh, Professor Lubna Kutami is an assistant professor in the Department of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. Kutami was a co-founder of the Palestinian youth movement and the former executive director of the Arab Cultural and Community Center in San Francisco. Welcome Lubna. Chandni Desai is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. She is working on her first book tentatively titled Revolutionary Circuits of Liberation the Radical Tradition of Palestinian Resistance, Culture and Internationalism. Her articles have been published in the Journal of Palestine Studies, Race and Class, Curriculum Inquiry, Decolonization, Indigeneity, Education and Society. And she has contributed to several anthologies, including An Oral History of the Palestinian Nakba. She co-edited a special issue on Decolonization in Palestine for the journal Decolonization. And she hosts the Liberation. Pedagogy podcast. Welcome, Professor Josai. Lauren Leibarger is Professor of Classics and Religious Studies at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. He's the author of Identity and Religion in Palestine: The Struggle Between Islamism and Secularism in the Occupied Territories, of Palestinian Chicago, Identity in Exile and co-author with James D'Amico and Edward Brittany of Commemorative Literacies and Labors of Justice, Resistance, Reconciliation and Recovery in Buenos Aires and Beyond. Welcome, Professor Leiberger. So I'd like to start with Professor Katami, could you provide us with a summary of your paper? Sure, thank you, thank you, Louise. Um,
1: First, I'd like to extend a heartfelt congratulations to the Journal of Palestine Studies on your 50th anniversary. And thank you for decades of producing knowledge informed by high standards of intellectual rigor and ethical and political commitments to Palestinian liberation. Thank you to Maya, Maggie and Laura for helping organize the special issue and this panel and to Emily um, and to Luis for your, for your labor of love, bringing us together with your visionary insights informed by decades of your own contributions to the Palestinian struggle. And thank you to Shireen Saikali and Nadine Nabed and everyone else at JPS who helped bring my thoughts into fruition uh, in this essay as well. I'm honored to be with you all today, and I'm joining you from the unceded lands of the Tongva people, otherwise known as Los Angeles, California. Some two years ago, when Luis asked me if I would be interested in contributing an essay um, in this special issue on Palestinians in the US and Canada, I wasn't uh, initially sure what to write about. Certainly there were several topics that came to mind based on my own scholar activist ethnographic methods and involvement in Palestinian student organizing with the General Union of Palestinian Students at San Francisco State University, uh, as a graduate student um, in the Arab and Muslim ethnicities and diasporas program at SFSU, an active uh, member of the campaign to make UAW 2865, the teaching assistant union, labor union to adopt a full boycott divestment and sanctions resolution. I also considered writing a general biographical essay about the North American branch of the Palestinian youth movement, um, which is there, you know, the PYM is where I've done the majority of my Palestine organizing until now. I could have talked about the activity
2: Of the PYM
0: America branch,
1: renewal of joint struggle relationships, practices, and theorizations. With I also considered writing about the scores of repression and censorship campaigns impacting students and youth and scholars of Palestine um which louis just including among palestinian scholars of what had preoccupied most of my time and thoughts I, I, I recognize that another issue was also
0: preoccupying my thoughts about the state of palestinian organizing in the
2: us and in keeping with the palestinian
1: traditions engage in political and history of Palestinian and Arab organizing in the United States, focusing on the vibrant role played by students and youth in the national liberation struggle. Affirming the indispensable nature of these contributions, participants insisted that a more powerful student and youth movement was needed to promote the cause of Palestinian liberation in the US. The youth present envisioned how to strengthen their organizing um, on multiple scales, on transnational scales on US-based Palestinian and Arab local communities, and with joint struggle causes locally, nationally, and globally. Analyzing what lay ahead, participants identified the factors that make Palestinian youth organizing particularly challenging. Ruthless Zionist culture wars, which are erasing or punish any meaningful expression of Palestinian identity and or aspirations for freedom. The widespread and growing criminalization of Palestinian activism in the diaspora, the ideological, political, and social fragmentation of Palestinian communities, both locally and transnationally, particularly in the context of the post-Oslo Accords era, A a fractured and ineffective national leadership, limited financial resources and human capacity, and the new generation's insufficient grasp of history, the absence of organized forums to equip youth with the political education and skills training needed to develop into community leaders. Among the greatest obstacles to organizing identified by, this, uh, by, the, by the members of the Congress um, in, to, in 2019 was their inadequate understanding of history as a solid departure point. They expressed the feeling that they were starting from scratch without any clear references for the development of organizing sensibilities, skills, or visions for the struggle, rendering them ill-equipped to organize within existing activist spaces and their communities. An estrangement from understanding Palestinian political life, their sense of social isolation from Palestinian communities, locally and transnationally, and their literal and cultural distance from their homeland. Um, you know, I'll just say like, sometimes questions of not being able to speak Arabic enough or not having family that st- stayed in Palestine brings is a big source of insecurity for a lot of these young people. Um, and then also the question of, um, you know, a lot, this, the question of not feeling Palestinian enough, not feeling authentically Palestinian, not feeling like they belong to a Palestinian political community, all lends itself to them, you know, to a lot of them expressing that they felt they had no right to play a role in the struggle as a Palestinian, that they saw themselves more from the vantage point of being a solidarity activist. I argue that the decimation of institutional knowledge and history, and the absence of vehicles for the transmission of collective, intergenerational, and transnational political lessons, characterize the Palestinian struggle across generations. There are many reasons why a retrieval of Palestinian knowledge and organizational history is fraught with complexity, and I hope to return to some of those questions during the Q and A. However, I mentioned the reason I wrote—I um, I mentioned this as the reason I wrote this essay. To illustrate its purpose to rekindle the severed ties of Palestinian history and transnational connections for new generations of Palestinian thinkers and movement practitioners in the US and Canada diaspora who are embarking on the course of freedom struggle. My essay explores the transnational histories that have conditioned Palestinian youth organizing in the US from the 1950s to the present day. It examines the organizational vehicles of earlier generations of activists such as the 1952 formed Organization of Arab Students and the 1980 formed General Union of Palestinian Students to trace the formation of the US chapter of the transnational Palestinian youth movement. It argues that in the Oslo and post Oslo eras, which severed the Palestinian diaspora from the national body politic and the rich Palestinian organizational histories of the pre-1993 period, the lessons of their forerunners are instructive for PYM's new generation of organizers. By offering an assessment of the PYM on the backdrop of, the, of its predecessors, the OAS and the GUPS, the essay chronicles some of the shared characteristics of all three organizations, which all operated as national bodies predicated on a democratic centralized structure with local chapters. All three of these groups, all three of these groups formed out of political vacuums in the broader Palestinian and Arab communal landscape. They all formed in response to a reconfiguration. Of Palestinian and transnational homeland politics, they all practiced joint struggle, relationship building, and they all centered critical pedagogy, summer camps, delegations, reading groups, speaking tours, and other educational persons as part of their mission. There are also instructive differences between the OAS, GUPS, and PYM. Those that are largely conditioned by changes of the political moment and reconfigurations of Palestinian and Arab homeland politics, which I think is less um, has been less taken up in a lot of the scholarship on the Palestinian diaspora, than um, the changing political context, specifically within the United States. Despite these differences, and maybe because of them, I argue that transnational connections have profound implications for localized US political organizing, and that contemporary Palestinian youth organizing is part of a historical continuum. And in st- in speaking about the historical continuum, for example, the emergence of GUPS is directly tethered to the liquidation of OAS, the disagreements, the instructive differences within the OAS that led to the formation of GUPS uh, and the end of the OAS experience. And the same is true for the emergence of PYM in relationship to the vanishment of GUPS in the United States. The internal differences within each group in large part reflect the overarching power reconfigurations uh, and fractures, political rivalries in Palestine and, and the Arab world the shifts in geopolitical currents, the rise and decline of Arab nationalism, the nationalization of the Palestinian struggle following 67, the rise of political Islam as a powerful force in regional politics and the signature of the Oslo Accords, whereby the PLO traded in the boundless fervor of an anti-colonial movement for the hollow promise of a state in just 22% of historic Palestine, which which also had the power to fracture Palestinian communities, cutting millions of refugees and Palestinians of exile, who had long been central parts of the liberation ecosystem and structure out of the equation. The essay examines the shifting practice of joint struggle organizing based on reconfigurations of racial politics as well in the US from the 1950s onward, alongside the different makeup of OAS, GUPS, and PYM's membership base. The former two largely constituted by international students set on returning to their homelands while the latter were Uh, while the membership of the latter were those who were mostly born and raised in the United States, politicized first through a U.S. racial landscape and their location as Palestinians, Arabs, and or Muslims in a hostile post-war on terror context and its convergence with Zionist repression and diaspora. The essay's comparative approach looks at the internal movement dilemmas, political differences, fractures, and credibility rivalries that have affected multiple generations of Palestinian and Arab youth and student organizers, in the US and largely stem from the broader fractures and dilemmas affecting Palestinian and Arab political formations transnationally. I argue that the PYM's internal challenges parallel those of earlier generations, even in a completely different global and geopolitical context. But I also conclude by examining some of the specific challenges and generative elements of the post Oslo context and how PYM and forthcoming youth movements can make use of differences these differences in service of forward looking diasporic vision for the liberation of palestine thank you
2: thank you so much
0: professor khatami and read the article it's 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 fantastic um, our next uh, presenter is professor Chani Desai Chani?
3: thank you um so before beginning with the summary, I uh, also want to just acknowledge that I'm zooming in from the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe, huron Windat, Seneca, and the Mississaugas of the Credit River uh, in the Dish With One Spoon territory. Um, I also want to begin by congratulating the Journal of Palestine Studies for 50 years and gifting us a body of intellectual thought um, that is so urgent and um, necessary amidst all the erasures that um, the field is up against, um, but and also Palestine is up against. Um, I want to also specifically thank Maggie, Laura and Emily for organizing us, Shireen Saikali, Rashid Khalidi, Louise, uh, and the blind reviewers for their critical and robust feedback, um, and Maya for outstanding editing and helping me tell the story um, just the way it should be told. Um, it is also such an honor to be part of this special issue and a panel amongst such um, incredible scholar activists um, who are um, who I who I, I just tremendously admire and, and also look up to. So thank you for uh, the invitation, Louise. Um, so the summary, uh, my article comparatively examines two settler colonial states, Canada and Israel their conquests and subsequent state formations in Turtle Island and in Palestine, the state's treatment of indigenous people, um, so First Nations in Canada and Palestinians in the context of Palestine, um, as well as indigenous resistance and solidarity against settler colonial state violence. The article has six sections, um, and I'm going to just quickly outline the six sections and what I uh, try to you know, discuss and debate or argue in each of the sections. Um, In the first section, I examined the resurgence of indigenous Palestinian solidarity that occurred in 2020 during the Wet'suwet'en resistance to shut down the Canadian state through infrastructure blockades, disruption of supply chains and mass uprisings. In Wet'suwet'en, an indigenous refusal to consent the construction of the coastal gaslink pipeline and police invasion of their unceded territory, which is in you know British Columbia, and this violence is actually continuing and intensifying as we are meeting right now, um, uh, which is you know illegal under indigenous governance structures and customary law processes. The shutdown of Canada took in the same time U.S. President Donald Trump's Middle East Peace Plan, the Deal of the Century, was released in 2020, during which Indigenous activists also showed up in solidarity with Palestine against the, uh, against the um, Trump deal. By analyzing political statements, interviews, with organizers and examining symbols of solidarity, in this first section, I developed the concept of resurgent solidarity to theorize the Wet'suwet'en-Palestinian convergence in 2020 and show how activists were able to articulate commitment mutualization, mutual action and transnational dialogue across borders, what Steven Salaita has called inter nationalism and what Leanne Simpson calls constellations of co-resistance. I then move to the second section um, and transition to historicizing the resurgence of solidarity and argue that these constellations of co-resistance are predated and prefigured by the period of the 1970s when the first significant wave of indigenous Palestinian solidarity developed during the era of the red power, anti-imperialist movements and third world decolonization in which the Palestinian Liberation Organization figured prominently. I chart a 50-year history of the various ways indigenous struggles in the Palestinian movement, including the solidarity movement in Canada, engaged what Nadine Neber calls conjoined struggle, and I provide details of what that looked like, the kinds of actions that were taken, um, the ways in which solidarity was specifically taken up in terms of direct action, and lessons that were gleaned across movements. But more importantly, I underscore the challenges, pitfalls and contradictions of solidarity, which include assumptive solidarities, tokenism, redwashing, reactionary crisis management forms of solidarity, oppression Olympics, and also Indigenous and at times Palestinian exceptionalism. During these kinds of convergences notions of sameness are often used to link settler projects and connect myriad forms of oppression to construct analogies between shared past and in present contexts. This was certainly the case during the uh, wetsuits and Palestinian convergence, while comparisons. Because Canada has been a site of really important transnational activism and also building uh, really important movements. um, And also, uh, you know, um, pedagogically in terms of the expansion um, and use of analytics like apartheid and settler colonialism. Um, And so because few studies engage in this kind of comprehensive relational and comparative analysis of settler colonial um, analytics or political economies in relation to tactics of anti-colonial resistance and transnational solidarity, um, the, the article seeks to make this contribution to Palestine studies. The distinct analysis of the political, economic and juridical formations that subtend colonization across geographic context discussed in this article enables an understanding of the limitations of our analytics and the need for capacious frameworks to further develop a praxis for radical coexistence, resistance, um, solidarity, and joint struggle for liberation in the present. And that's the introduction or the summary.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Professor Desai. And now on to Professor Leiberger.
2: Well, thank you, Louise. And thank you as well for the immense amount of work you've put into editing this special issue of the journal and organizing this panel. I'm grateful to the Journal of Palestine Studies and its editorial board for supporting the panel and and this issue, especially grateful to Maggie Smith, Shireen Saikali, who gave excellent comments and input, uh, Maya Tabat, Rashid Khalidi, of course, and everyone else. Congratulations on this 50th anniversary. It's an honor to be here with all of you. And I also want to take a moment to recognize Louise for the foundational role she has played in Palestine Studies and Arab American Studies. Louise, you've modeled what committed activism and rigorous scholarship can look like when they are brought together. I've admired your your example, relied heavily on your work and appreciated your friendship through the years. My contribution to this special issue of JPS focuses on identity shifts within the Palestinian community in Chicago since the 1990s. These shifts emerged within a complex historical moment in which religious principally reformist Islamic orientations took root while once dominant secular nationalist institutions weakened. At the time, several scholars, including Louise, took note of these changes in the Chicago community. I also witnessed them. Had multiple causes, that included the collapse of PLO as a framework for diaspora uh, political identity and mobilization, but also involved a large demographic shift to the suburbs, the closing of the community centers, with the notable exception of the AAAN and the older urban enclave, that is to say the Arab American Action Network. The establishment of well-endowed mosques, like the mosque foundation in places like Bridgeview, and the impact of Islamic religious revitalization not only in Palestine itself, but in the wider Middle East and globally, including across diverse Muslim immigrant communities in cities like Chicago. Anti-Arab and anti-Muslim racism was also an important factor, motivating for many younger Palestinians an identification with and defense of Islam. In parallel with these developments, Islam began to emerge as a framework for community mobilization beyond the specific Palestinian context. Inner City Muslim Action Network, Iman, which formed at the same time as the AAAN and drew from AAAN's activist base, inspired young Muslims on the South Side and what Rami Nashashibi termed deep community building, something Rami faulted, uh, a Palestine-centric framework for ignoring. My article in my book, Palestinian Chicago, from which the article drew its data, analyzes the impact of these changes in identity at the, at the individual level. I can provide details about my failed work. I described this in the article, which stretched from 2010 to 2015, but relied as well on my much longer connection to the community dating to the 1990s. Here, however, I will briefly summarize what was for me a surprising finding. Rather than necessarily a wholesale embrace of Islam, what I discovered in my interviews and observations was a much more complex process of identity negotiation at the individual level in which secularism and secularity continued as a shaping force. The salience of the secular during an obvious religious shift had to do not only with a persisting institutional presence in the form of organizations like uh, the Arab American Action Network, but also with the continuing centrality of the Palestinian struggle and with dynamics that were specific to the religious shift itself. I demonstrate this in an analysis of how American Muslims for Palestine, AMP, centered activism on Palestine as a core commitment of Islam itself. A&P, I argue, by centering Islam in this way, essentially secularized Islam, even as it Islamized the Palestinian cause. I also document how individuals who grew up within the Islamized milieu and families that embraced the new piety and sent their kids to the new Islamic schools reacted against their upbringing and in doing so gave voice to a new form of deinstitutionalized secularism. One individual whom I described, for example, spoke of embracing a quote, secular Islam through which she retained a connection to the community in the suburbs but rejected much of the religious ideology, especially in relation to gender roles. In another example, I, I profile a woman who grew up a Christian but then converted to Islam because it seemed more authentically Palestinian to be a Muslim to her. Put off by the reformist piety in the suburbs, however, she had increasingly come to embrace a non-sectarian spirituality that blended faith in God with love for Palestine. Both individuals placed Palestine at the center of their sense of self, but did so in the absence of any connection to activist organizations. Their identity expressions were therefore highly idiosyncratic and delinked from the sort of collective struggle that the former community centers had institutionalized. Whether the multiple identity articulations that I describe indicate new possibilities for solidarity and activism on Palestine remains an open question. The idiosyncratic identity expressions I analyze are are more a diagnostic of 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 the loss of a secular institutional base for identity and activism than evidence of any sort of new activist formation coming into existence. Whether religion can be an alternative basis for specifically Palestinian unity is also an open question. AMP would indicate that it can it can be a basis, but this framework comes with the cost of de-emphasizing the historically ecumenical framework. Um, to borrow Osama Mukhtar's, uh term, of Palestinian national solidarity, several Palestinian Christians I interviewed, all of them deeply committed to Palestine advocacy and liberation, expressed feeling alienated by AMP's identity framework. Organizations like the Inner City Muslim Action Network also would indicate a shift in focus of activism activism beyond Palestine. Even even though Iman activists might be sympathetic to the cause of Palestinian liberation, um, the social justice emphasis or their, their social justice emphasis lies elsewhere. Palestine activists, however, might engage with these religious models of organizing to ask how alliances can be forged across ethnic and religious lines the deep community building that Iman has sought to model, as well as AMP's um, you know broader interfaith uh, uh, coalitions and efforts, um, has sought to model, um, especially relevant for any discussion about the problem of, of tokenism and the challenge of achieving genuine and sustained solidarities across movements. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Um, OK, so I have prepared. Um, question for each speaker based on really our focus on solidarity and activism. So to Professor Kutami, you note that students and youth in exile have always played major roles in the Palestine Liberation Project, and you argue that an effective movement must be grounded in knowledge of the past. You say, quote, Palestinians have been in a perpetual position of starting over their pursuits of liberation unquote, and that youth organizers are too often presented with fragments of the past that has been subjected to, quote, persistent annihilation. So I know you talked about this a little bit, but I just want you to take a few minutes uh, to elaborate further on why such, why is annihilation the case? Why, why is that happening? Does it have any relationship to what I spoke about earlier in terms of... Um, erasures in the academy? um, And why is it important for organizers to know the past? So big question, but um, just take a few minutes, please. Yeah, thank you so much.
1: It's a a really great question. Um, I think, you know, when I think of the Palestinian struggle, I I think of it, you know, as a, a struggle where there's a settler colonial paradigm that's intersecting with a military and, and carceral apparatus, which as um, um, essay so brilliantly talked about. Um, that requires a vanishment of Palestinians from their land. Certainly we all know that it requires a replacement of Palestinian natural landscapes and agriculture and architecture and cultural and social histories in that place that we call Palestine. Um, it requires a suspension of Palestinians from time, like so many, Um, brilliant works that have discussed the act of refugees having to wait, like waiting as a quintessential characteristic of Palestinian refugee experiences, waiting for return, waiting for resettlement, waiting for rights bearing citizenship, waiting in lines for humanitarian assistance. Um, This um, regime that Palestinians are confronted with includes a repertoire of catastrophes at every turn. Multiple um, experiences of exodus, 67, Black September, siege, sieges, the siege of Tallah the destruction of Sabran Shatila camps, the, the effect of the Gulf War on Palestinians, the effect of Palestinians during the US invasion of Iraq in 2003. Right now, Pal- Palestinians um, experiencing the catastrophes in Syria alongside um, millions of Syrians. But it also includes, aside from the very physical experience of continued ongoing neckbit, what so many scholars have talked about, the ongoing neckbit. this experience of, of settler colonialism also requires um, a suspension or a decimation of Palestinian narratives, right? The looting and decimation of Palestinian archives historically has been one of the biggest struggles that, that, that historians of Palestine have had to deal with. The systematized attack on Palestinian expression and thought and narratives in museums, um, in in academia, as we've talked about, the attacks on Palestine's inclusion in the California Ethnic Studies curriculum, the attacks on the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diasporas program at San Francisco State University, um, the attacks on, on Rabab Bob Hadi there, the the you know the the expulsion of of, of, of Stephen Salida. These are all assist- systematic attacks that are rooted in um, the erasure of Palestine, not just the physical landscape, but its history, its narratives, and its people's voices and experiences from historic registrars. I think all of that coupled with the fact that, you know, there's such extreme criminalization of Palestinian narratives and Palestinian speech, even in the academy, even within student activist spaces, it really makes it quite complicated. There's a really difficult calculus at play with how to talk about Palestine and access Palestinian histories um, when there's so much that we're carrying in the same in the same moment. When we think about our families, even the, the 70 years of, of different forms of trauma that they might've en- endured, not every family wants to tell their, their own experiences to their children and to their youth. It brings up a lot of pain. For some, it brings up a lot of feelings of betrayal and cynicism and a loss of hope in the Palestinian liberation movement because people have felt betrayed by others in the movement. So I think we take it for granted that Palestinians are passing on to their kin oral history narratives of even their experiences. So I think that that is in, in large part a big part of the reason why young people do struggle to access the intimate details of our organizational histories because of the fear of criminalization, because of the fear of um, being punished in some way. Um, But at the same time, I think the retrieval of the past is is important because what I find is that um, there is a very real present day material violence that happens to Palestinians in our homeland and globally that makes young people want to know. And want to ask those questions and want to know who they are and where they come from in order to feel confident in how they move in the world um, and not to feel like just so degraded um, as a person in every space that, you know, in every classroom that they sit in um, when there's such degrading um, discussions about Palestinians without us. But at the same time, um, when young people kind of attempt to find those histories on their own, they're met with a lot of challenges. And I think one of the things that I've found is that, and I've been guilty of this too as a youth organizer, right, is that we tend to construct really romantic uh, depictions of our history because we don't see all of the ugly truths that also constituted it. And so when we construct those really romantic views of history about how brilliant the PLO was and how incredibly revolutionary and ethical all of our factions and parties were, and we erase a lot of the challenges and mistakes and difficulties and ugly truths that existed within it, we have the tendency to possibly reproduce those um, those um, those mistakes. On the flip side, when we have a really critical appraisal of that history and only see it as an ugly history with a lot of internal violence and um, lack of ethics, we also can't see what's generative about our Palestinian revolutionary history and the different modes of samud, of steadfastness, of resilience that have been practiced across every generation and that can be retrieved by a new generation. So I think it's a really difficult process to apprehend that history, but it's also a very necessary one.
0: Thank you for really exploring the comprehensiveness of this project of erasure. It is multifaceted, multi multilayered, um, you did a good job of that. Okay, Professor Desai, this, excuse me for the long intro to this question, but um, your work complicates narratives of sameness, which you argue obstruct joint struggle. You also say that an oppression Olympics inhibits mass popular resistance. You problematize the settler colonial framework of analysis, arguing that it lacks the capacity to incorporate widely spread capitalist violence and elides race and class differences in settler societies. You identify a range of Palestinian Canadian positionalities that take into account being both victims of settler colonialism, and immigrants who benefit from it. Can you elaborate on why it is important for activists on the ground to have a better understanding of all of these distinctions and larger forces at play?
3: Yeah, um, so, Maybe I'll focus on one aspect um, of it and speak also a little bit to the differential positionalities of how Palestinians might identify and then sort of talk about um, um, what what the implications are for that. So one of the limits of the settler colonial analytic that I discussed in the article um, is the conflation of migration with colonization in some of the scholarship which tends to then deny migratory histories of other indigenous people, particularly those from the global south, and the structural violence refugees and migrants have endured. And I argue that the delinking of these of, of binaries from slavery or imperialist occupations and wars and other settler colonial projects, like that of the Israeli state, obscures capitalism and colonialism's global and violent transnational character. When we consider Palestinians in Canada, most um, displaced Palestinians arrived in Canada as refugees or immigrants from differential geographic areas and class backgrounds through the Canadian immigration system, acquiring refugee or citizenship status inside the colonial state, so they get folded in within the colonial state structure that is antithetical to Indigenous sovereignty. and for many but for many refugees migration was not a choice right as Lubna mentioned there's a continuous Nakba that has been happening um since 1948 and until and, and present and so upon arrival um many of the Palestinian refugees or migrants become what Nadine neighbor has called the diasporas of empire wherein the subjects of imperialism resides within the settler colonial imperialist state encapsulated vividly in the saying we are here because you're there. Um, There is no homogenous identifications that diasporic Palestinians in Canada have vis-a-vis Indigenous people or the Canadian state. Some Palestinians, mainly leftists, self-ascribe as racialized settlers, while others view themselves as subjects of colonial and imperialist dispossession who did not come to Canada voluntarily and have no nation state to return to um, yet in this moment. Um, And others consider Canada complicit in the Zionist colonization of Palestine um, and subsequent Palestinian dispossession because of the prominent role Canada has played in the 1947 UN partition plan, which influenced the interests of the Zionist lobby and its Western allies. Um, And it's an allegiance that continues to the present. These Palestinians view their presence on stolen land as a consequence of shared imperialist intimacies between settler projects that structured the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And some cannot view themselves uh, as settlers because of what an Israeli settler is to them, their colonizer. Yet others remain ambivalent about their position, mainly because of fear of Canadian state violence upon them, like deportation, surveillance, incarceration, um, and other forms of state violence. Um, Palestinian stances vary based on ideology, class interests, political orientations, historical knowledge, and generational differences. So there isn't a homogeneous sort of position on it. But what I'm trying to argue is that the conflation of migration with colonization then abstracts the racialized hierarchies that settler states use to structure um, their subjugation, particularly through white supremacy, um, that subjects them to immense um, colonial violence uh, living in Canada. Um, and especially Palestinians. Such formulations, um, I argue, obliterate, obliterate also the indigeneity of migrants and refugees, turning them into settlers, which severs their relationship to their own lands and communities, at times erasing the settler from other people's history. So in this case, Zionist settlers from Palestinian history. Some of the theorists that conceptualize migration and resettlement of refugees and migrants suggest that refugee migrant struggles are incompatible with decolonization struggles in North America. And I find these kinds of theorizations really impact political organizing because on the ground, organizing then comes down to um, identity politics, who's a settler, who's not, who's oppressed, who's not, who can participate in decolonization struggles, who can't. This really forecloses the possibilities for anti-colonial struggle radical decolonization, and it doesn't actually become about serious mass movement building or real opposition to the state and its colonial racial capitalist, imperialist and heteropatriarchal logics um, and the immense violence it produces. Um, In the Canadian context, leftist movements don't always have a particularly strong understanding or critique of imperialism. And so there's a lack of understanding of how struggles for decolonization in North America are linked to other struggles for self-determination Decolonization and liberation. So I ask if settler colonialism in North America were placed within the spatio temporal context of capitalist imperialism abroad, how might we see these structures and social relations as moving but conjoined parts of the imperial present? And what would holding settler colonial empire and diaspora within the same spatio temporal frame imply for those structurally dispossessed? As well my analysis that deploys a settler colonial framing must content with the emerging class differences within settler societies, which the analytic really doesn't do neoliberalism has reinforced class hierarchies in which some bourgeois natives have become collaborators with their colonizers, based on their shared market interests across these settler states. And we see this with band councils in Canada, that are, you know, trying to make agreements for pipeline construction and the Palestinian Authority, which, you know, we don't need to get into the Palestinian Authority. So. We must, therefore, ask how do the current classifications and categories within the settler colonial framework reinscribe logics and reproduce class, race and gender? Do we want to reproduce oppressive nationalisms or something else? And finally, diaspora communities um, have to contend with how making a new home on stolen lands makes them beneficiaries of settler colonialism in Canada. And many Palestinian activists suggest that there is a responsibility and obligation to partake in solidarity with indigenous people across Turtle Island and work towards mutual liberation. Um, I think the quote you know, by Robin Kelly um, really sums up for me, this quote uh, that solidarity is a contingent political project rather than some kind of natural, essential trans historical alliance or racial imperative. And really it is through struggle and through building and through the, you know, challenges and contradictions and revision of histories and the, um, you know, um, thinking about the mistakes um, that we can really move um, towards social transformation and radical change. And so the limits, I think, foreclose the possibilities of what is possible. And I think that if, you know, when we, when we hear sort of Lubna speak about the importance of um you know this history she's trying to tell or many of us are trying to do here learning from these histories can potentially move us into new possibilities and directions and that's i think what i'm trying to argue um, is for radical possibilities not foreclosing them
0: thank you your analysis um clearly shows how to reduce the power of divide and conquer tactics that are so often deployed among movements Okay, to Professor Leiberger, your article addresses the widespread embrace of piety-minded orientations and practices in Chicago's Palestinian community. You attend to the ways in which which both youth and young adults have responded to this climate in a wide range of individualized and hybridized forms of identity and performance, which are often accommodations to and reactions against the new piety-mindedness. Can you elaborate further for us on how these emerging forms of subjectivity offer new possibilities for solidarity, including the emergence of a new secularism and Palestinian activism?
2: Yes, thank you, Louise, for the question. Um, so I have to, first of all, just admit to um, saying that I don't have a really well worked out answer to that question. I, it, it was a question that emerged for me in the context of writing the article and in responding to um, the input of uh, your input as well as, as the input of the editors. Um, as I was thinking about this, uh, I found myself, and I think I addressed some of this already in in my response um, or in my, uh, my summary of, of the article toward the end where, um, I began to think about, you know, what these new religious uh, directions, um, organizational structures that have emerged might offer to um, Palestine uh, activism and organizing. Um, because clearly in the Chicago context, you know, what has been so apparent historically, at least since the 1990s, you know, uh, and these are, these are um, things that you've documented yourself, Louise, in your own work, uh, with the closing of the community centers and the, you know, the, the transition of the community to the suburbs and the emergence of the mosques as the primary institutional anchors of these communities. What does that imply or what does that mean for uh, activism? Now that activism you know, has continued, of course, on university campuses with um, Students for Justice for Palestine chapters, uh, the PYM and other movements. Um, but once you you know leave the university and are in the community, um, what you encounter, at least in Chicago, is that the mosques are, 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 are the predominant institutional structures that are organizing community life today. Um, you know, on any given Friday, you know, you go to the mosque foundation and the parking lots are jammed full um, and. Then you have new organizations uh, like American Muslims for Palestine, which, you know, holds an annual conference, um, which attracts thousands of people from across North America and internationally from Palestine as well to participate. And so what I see is, you know, these sort of new emerging structures in which Palestine, you know, activism is occurring and and, uh, calls for Palestinian liberation are continuing. Uh, but it's a it's a it's a very different kind of structure from the ones that uh that Lumina and Chen Ni are describing. Um, and it's interesting to me that you know uh, in the in, and this is not a criticism of, of Lumna or Chen Ni's papers at all, um, but that religion doesn't really you know register um uh, in, in 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 those discussions, which were you know wonderful, wonderful papers to read, and I learned quite a bit from them. Um, and so I kind of began to think about my own paper as sort of this outlier on this panel, um, wondering, you know, what exactly is the connection? And this question that you're putting uh, to me, and that the editors put to me about what my findings imply for, you know, new forms of activism, um, really, it's an open question for me. And I and I and I I, I don't know um, the the sort of idiosyncratic uh, trajectories that I was describing at this individual level with these you know these two women that I. am I profile um, in in the in the article, um, but then also in much more detail with with other uh, examples in my book. Um, you know, on one hand, they index a kind of weakening of uh, community-based activist structures. Um, these these individuals are not connected to them. Um, but what I'm documenting is a kind of uh, was something that I I, I um, found surprising. I didn't anticipate in my research. Um, was the sort of unanticipated consequence of this shift toward um, uh, kind of a religious uh, framework? Was a reaction against it, right? And a search for, you know, a different, um, not so much a search, but an articulation or expression of a different understanding of self um, that was in part a reaction to having grown up in this kind of milieu, right? Where I, I described it as a piety minded milieu, uh, disenchantment with it. Um, uh, but there was you know an absence at least at the time of my field work of um, you know other sort of institutional alternatives and, and connections and spaces within which to articulate a different kind of sense of self all of these individuals of course i mean Palestine was central to their sense of who they were um, but what was really striking was the sort of the the delinked or de-institutionalized nature of or character of, of the identities that they were expressing um, so, I mean, that's, um, I, I don't, so I guess I don't have a really um, uh, clear answer to the question. Uh, the question's a good one. Um, and I guess I would f- maybe ask a different question and ask, you know, what are the implications of, of you know, what I describe in my, in my article and my research um, with respect to the relig- religious shift for some of the issues that, you know, Chantney and, and Lumna are describing in, the, in, their, in their research in their articles um and i'll leave it i'll leave it at that there was a question in the um question and answer uh you know asking about my use of secularism and what i mean by that and i described that in some detail in the article and in my book um and also a reference to islamic epistemologies i'm not entirely sure what that was meant um, what was meant by that and if the questioner would be willing to clarify that i would be really appreciative but um uh, this sort of uh, this new secularism that I'm describing or these sort of um, unexpected forms of secularism I guess part of it too if I may just um, add on a little bit here. Um, for me, I, one of the things that I try to push back on is um, a kind of and then we saw this after, uh, after September 11th right the way in which Islam emerges as a kind of primary category within which you know Palestinians are lumped and um, and I kind of wanted to push back against this and, and to sort of bring the secular back in and to say that, you know, even though these um, processes have occurred within the community, they're highly complex, have, have complex origins and complex um, impacts that, um, you know, and it doesn't mean that secularism has disappeared per se, but rather has changed or, or, or transformed in its, in its expression in, in different ways.
0: Thank you. Um, so I have three, what I call big questions for the whole panel. And I think we could and then we'll open it up to the audience. So I think why don't we follow up with Lauren's question, which was one of the big questions. Uh, Dr. Kutami and Dr. Desai, how, how do you see the role of religion playing out in the processes, the solidarities, the activism that you speak about?
1: Yeah, I um, should I go first, Canny or do you want to? Okay, um, no, yeah, I think I think it's a great question. I mean, I think I think you know the question of religion comes up in my in my essay um, really through more of a political framework um, by talking about some of the fractures within the OAS and within the GUPS in particular. Um, for example, when we talk about some of the tensions of the late nineteen 70s within the OAS that leads eventually to its dissolution, among many other things. One of those tensions was disagreements between students who were supporters of the Ba'ath party and students who were supporting the Iranian revolution in 1979, right? And the introduction of political Islam into the the region. And there being a lot of debates uh, about that. There was even testimony from some of the folks I interviewed from an earlier phase about um, withdrawals of students from the OAS who had more Islamist leanings and uh, felt like um, the Arab nationalists held a monopoly of the OAS following 1965 and that there wasn't like really expressions for that. So I think you know the question of religion um, for especially for Palestinians does sometimes intersect and comes up in, a, in more of a, pol- a direct political expression regarding the forces at play in the region and who's gaining sort of popular credibility as, Um, you know, what's seen, for example, as you know, the main leaders against US and Israeli hegemony. And I think that, you know, from the 1990s onward, part of the reason why political Islam grew so much in our region and you know, Islamist sensibilities grow in our communities, even here is not just because of a vacuum left um, by the Oslo courts of secular organizing, but it's because also who people affiliate with being the new anti-colonial kind of vanguards in a way also, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm maybe being hasty with my words here, but that's sort of a reductive way of how I see some things. But I also wanna speak a little bit to um, some of the other findings about religion from some of my discussions more recently, some of my interviews with some of the um, the younger Palestinian youth movement members, I I recently interviewed a a young woman who is from um, the Austin branch and PYM. And we had a long discussion about how she really borrows, you know, she didn't grow up in a very politicized family. She's Palestinian, but her family did not talk with her about politics or the history of Palestine. She just knew that she was culturally Palestinian and had family there. But one thing she did have was access to um, Islamic teachings. And so one of the things she talked about once she came into PYM was that she finds a lot of her training in the PYM's movement culture trainings um, to really, you know, be um, um, compatible with Islamic teachings. And I asked her to give her examples of that. And she talks about ideas around comradeship, ideas around trust, ideas around, um, you know, service to the collective rather than the individual. And I think that. These kinds of really interpersonal and intimate and spiritual relationships with religion, whether Islam or Christianity, um, you know, we have to in our community, in our secular spaces, not just be more inclusive, but more respectful about understanding that they do inform the way that people show up in political, political spaces um, and are compatible with a lot, I think, of um, the, 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 the ethics that we try to train in, in movement cultures. So.
3: Thank you uh, for that um, really comprehensive sort of um, explanation, um, especially in terms of the US context. I think think in Canada, um, one of the aspects around religion has also been a point of tension, um, particularly around the contradictions that political Islam has uh, brought to the forefront in, in that at times, Um, the sort of religious aspect is taken out of the the particular ways in which political Islam is both complicit in what's happening in Palestine, but then also um, um, in terms of ideology and and people supporting different regimes that, you know, um, have a particular tradition of um, or follow a particular tradition of political Islam and 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 further that. So in a lot of organizing spaces, the that has been a point of contention around, you know, who gets to be at the table, what kind of politics um, get um, thought about. And I think a lot of times, um, those that are racialized, right, visibly because of either hijab or, you know, different markers that, you know, racialize um, Muslims in in a specific way will come to the organizing spaces with particular kinds of concerns around how can we think about Islam and and Islamophobia, not just in terms of, um, you know, racism, but also in terms of a broader state project, particularly in the post 9-11 moment. And how do we think about the way in which the state is doing um, criminalizes Islam in, in all the ways, which then has a consequence in terms of the way racism plays out. And so I think that, you know, recently, um, I mean, Canada has had some really egregious acts of hate and Islamophobia in the last um, couple of years. There, there were um, six men that were shot at a mosque in Ottawa. And um, recently, there was, you know, a white supremacists that ran down an entire Muslim family. They were um, Pakistani, but you know, um, in, in sort of the white supremacist mind, there's no distinction between Palestinians, Pakistanis, or you know, any 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 uh, Muslim for that matter. And not that that's justifiable in any way, but these kinds of also national. Um, um, you know, uh, moments of violence have really brought to the forefront, how do we better integrate um, a lens around thinking about Islam within um, activist movements, and especially in the context of Canada, because Palestinian youth have to navigate between their national liberation movement and the solidarity movement, sometimes these conversations around Islam get, you know, or religion become sort of, you um, uh, become sort of uh, minuscule and 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 this is not to suggest that you know there's no Christians or other religious sects and um, uh, different groups that also bring different questions to organizing tables within um, Palestinian um, organizations or organizing within um, the Canadian context but these are just some of the pieces around um, uh, how the movement sometimes stays away from some of these complex um, complex issues by virtue of um, trying to ensure that some of the tensions don't become divisive to continue the work. And, and I think that's a limit, right? So how do we open up better spaces to be able to be more inclusive in which um, different voices and different perspectives and different um, religious um you know, uh, practices and um, formations can be, can be integrated without it becoming a sectarian divide. And I think that is one of the greatest challenges is the sectarianism, both in the region and here then, you know, starts to occupy a lot of the organizing debates and conversations. And I think at times religion sort of gets downplayed as a way to um, mitigate the sectarian divides.
0: Thank you. Um, my next question, maybe our last, because we'll open, we'll open to the audience if they have any questions. Um, how, this is a methodological question. How does the Palestinian struggle inform our community based research methods? How does the criminalization, policing, and repression of Palestinian diasporic social and political life? offer particular methodological challenges for us as researchers, as well as thinking about accountability and responsibility towards the communities we are writing about. Whoever wants to go first, please do so.
2: I guess for me, I mean, just if I may um, just briefly speak to that, Um, you know, one of the challenges of field work, especially as someone who's not Palestinian, but who has had a long connection with um, Palestinians and the Palestinian struggle, both in Palestine and in uh, well, in Chicago specifically, um, you know, has to do with the fact that, you know, here in the United States, Palestinians are a policed population, right? That the policed community that um, obviously became extremely visible after 9-11, but this was you know something that predates 9-11, you know, by decades. Um, as you know as has been pointed out in the panel and as you pointed out Louise in your in your introductory piece to the journal or journal issue um, And so you know given that basic fact, how do you do field work responsibly um, becomes an incredibly important uh, you know question um, that one has to grapple with and, and um, I mean it, it begins with you know um, cultivating um, you know, trust and and developing, you know, a long-term uh, relationship. You just don't simply kind of parachute into a community and start doing this. But there's also, I think, you know, an ongoing responsibility to, um, you know, not only to, to uh, you know, lift up voices, but also to integrate the analyses of the individuals that you're interacting with, right? And so, but one of the, I guess, as I'm as I'm thinking about this, you know, one of the challenges, an additional challenge that I confronted, was that, you the Palestinian community, for example, in Chicago, is not monolithic. You have multiple factions, tensions. So negotiating that, right, and giving space to multiple voices, you know, to speak across these fractures, um, or if not fractures, in lines of tension, right, um, uh, that that is a challenge and finding ways to do that. Um, Uh, is important. I think with respect to my own work on religion and particularly you know what I described as as, um, the Islamic shift in Chicago to do that in the context of Islamophobia um, in the post 9-11 context has also been particularly challenging how to do that in a way that challenges the caricatures and stereotypes Um, and I guess that's if anything what I wanted to do in my research was to make the point uh, about complexity right and to you know lift up multiple voices um as a way to say that this is just simply not reducible to the caricatures that you know come you know surging back um especially you know since 9 11 but you know obviously I have a much longer history than that
0: okay hey, thanks professor kutami how
2: about you
1: yeah no i you know i have um a friend of mine Zaza, dr Zaza, and i always say what would it be like to write about something without the weight of history forcing your hand, and I think that this is a challenge that scholars of Palestine really struggle with. Um, I struggle with it um, methodologically. The feeling that you know sometimes the the choice of what we're deciding to write about is coming out of a political context of what's necessary, of what's useful, rather than what we desire. Right, having to put on the sidelines our desires and do something that we feel is in service of. Um, our collective needs as a community. I think that that is a really an important sense of responsibility for scholar activists. Um, and I also think that it's even with it being limiting from the very start in the sense that sometimes we arrive to our projects um, with political context deciding for us what needs to be written. There's also the limitations of what can be written even within that because of, you know, as was mentioned, the repression, the surveillance, the vulnerability that you might put people in your community, especially if you're doing ethnographic or oral history work um, using the names of organizations or real people. Um, And I think that as a scholar activist, one of the challenges I have is that um, I'm involved in the community. So there's a, you know, I don't have the struggle of the community being willing to talk to me. I have the struggle of needing to be the one responsible to decipher what goes in and what doesn't go in to the writing. Because um, I think, you know, the challenge is that um, you are responsible for what will happen to these community organizations and to these community organizers, knowing what you know about how knowledge produced on Palestine and Palestinian organizing has lent itself to, you know, deportations, criminalization, um, you know, in some cases, assassinations, you know, historically, but I think that that is, that's a real methodological challenge, um, carrying that responsibility, um, And then also just the last thing I would say is, um, you know, and and there were a lot of like colleagues and comrades that tried to walk me through this. I'm still working through this methodological challenge around reconstituting history, but there's no one singular monolithic history. Everyone has a very different read of history. They have very different reads of the timelines of history. And so finding a way to um, know where, you know, where, some kind of common consensus is, is really difficult, because I think people narrate history in the way that they personally experienced it the most. So at one point, I was really frustrated with the work of, you know, working on this essay, not really being able to get a really accurate timeline uh, around certain dates for conferences and um, things that happened. And I remember in one of my discussions with one of the elders, he said, listen, like, we don't know. Um, And he said that after um, the case of the LA8 happened, um, that you know everyone just kind of, there was this cloud of fear over a lot of the students. And so they just like gathered around campfires and were burning all of their own newsletters and burning all, all of their own you know meeting minutes. And so it's this idea around like this repression has also resulted in the loss of a lot of our own documentation. Um, so th- the responsibility to try to recreate it out of what can be salvaged is, um, it's a lot of pressure, but it's really necessary.
0: Absolutely. Okay, Professor Desai, maybe take, I don't know, four minutes or something so we can wrap up the panel. Let me see if there's, anyhow, go ahead. Yeah,
3: um, I mean, I, I won't add much. I think uh, both um, Lubna and uh, Lauren have really touched on some of the methodological challenges um, so beautifully that um, I, I resonate with most of what they say and, and, and really also face that. Um, but I think one of the uh, struggles that, you know, I, I think this goes back to Lubna's point around what can be said and what can't be said, what, uh, what should be written versus what um, you want to write about. And, um, and I think it's interesting because in some ways, I total tow this insider outsider line where I'm part of a political movement and part of a community, right? But at the same time, I'm not Palestinian, so I'm on the outside. Um, but Palestine, there's trust, years and decades of trust where people are willing um, to tell and, and share their stories. And um, but one for my research, this paper comes out of a separate article I wrote for the purpose of this special issue. But my research is actually on cultural production and. Um, sort of the revolutionary histories that uh, you know um, are also rooted uh, with elders in the region. So that means um, really thinking about surveillance um, and state repression, arrests. In you know, Lubna mentions mentioned assassinations. How do we go back and also talk to assassinated fam- You know, people who cultural figures that have been assassinated how do we go back and have those very painful conversations and um, responsibly and ethically tell those stories um, without the constant pressure of am I doing service to history am I doing service to um, you know and I think sometimes that's paralyzing um, uh, because you know on the one hand there are many narratives of history and we have to figure out which ones Uh, we fit into, but also which we politically perhaps, um, you know, (laughs) agree with, I guess. Um, But at the same time, um, I think that there are so many challenges when we think about the consequences of what the research will have, both for people of the past um, or their families, right? And and I remember, I'll tell a really sort of anecdotal story, so I'm not sort of talking in abstract, um, but again, it makes you speak in abstract, because you, you don't want to say what you're trying to say, Um, is, is I remember when I'd interviewed this really prominent cultural figure who was part of the PLO, she had, you know, told me this details and she said, Chani, maybe, maybe keep those details until after I die, because I don't know what revealing that XYZ would mean, um, for if they could come back for me now, you know, or, um, Um, there might be a person whose narrative or case, court case or ongoing case you might want to talk about. um, But, you know, the state might use the research as evidence um, or as um, documentation that can be used to execute or deport or whatever they're trying to do, persecute, um, not execute, persecute um, the person that you're trying to work with. So I think for me, there's so many, I mean, there's so many methodological challenges, so many on so many levels, Um, but at the same time, I also wanna say that, you know, whenever I do ethnographic research, I also exercise an ethnographic refusal, which also doesn't have to tell the story in its fullest, right, it can tell the story in the footnotes, it can tell the story through the um, in-between lines that um, people in the Palestinian community or others will really pick up on those details, But I necessarily don't need to tell that story for academic audiences. um, That particular detail. So there are ways that we can also practice anonymity or tell the story and practice refusal while telling the details that are important to Palestinians or the broader movement or struggle without having to um, jeopardize people's identity and um, or or their their families well being. Um, so yeah, it's it's a big question, it's a heavy question, but I think ultimately um, it's important that we work through the methodological traps because I think there's so much responsibility and I think an extra responsibility when you're doing work on Palestine, that, um, that if we get trapped, we might not be able to actually write and do the work. And so that's where I think conversations with each other and conversations broadly with others um, that do the work is really important um, to sustain us, to, to move through um the challenges of of the method, you know. So that's I think where I'll leave it. Thank
0: you. You know, you were this discussion reminded me. Um, I was so shocked with, with the Rasmia Oda's case that it was a paper she turned into one of her college professors, that he then turned into intelligence agents. That was part of the launching of the deportation of her case. How, how unethical, how unethical is that? Um, I guess I'll bring it back in the final two minutes to how I ended my introduction, which was calling for a return of, of community studies. Uh, so I want to talk about the responsibility piece of the, of the methodological challenges. You know, do we, do we have a responsibility, or we do, I think, have responsibilities to give back, to lift up, to empower um, our work can't just be for us. It can't just be for our vita. It can't be for our tenure. It, 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 it's we're ethically responsible to give back in some way. And I think that um, um, community level work does have a lot of power to um, provide resources to communities and help them grow in their capacity to um, empower their community and grow in solidarity with other like communities. So.